The title of this presentation is Platonic Christianity and it has a subtitle What Harmony Is There Between Christ and Plato? It is a study of the meaning, origin and development of this strange but dominating alloyed religion. The challenge it presents and the response to that challenge. You may not have heard of Platonic Christianity we don't think you will find a book of this title in the library, not even in the church history section. In fact, it is not a frequently used term, even in theological circles. Maybe it is a topic, unfortunately, and perhaps intentionally, avoided. It refers to a very serious issue concerning certain popular and traditional evangelical doctrines and for this reason, we suggest that as we listen to this presentation, we do so in prayer and open-mindedness to what the Lord might be wanting to reveal to us. Well, what does the term Platonic Christianity mean? Obviously, it must refer to a combination in some manner of Platonic philosophy and Christian doctrine the teachings of Plato and those of the Bible. But where do we find such a combination? Who would try to combine these diametrically opposed systems? What has Plato to do with the Bible, or vice versa? What communion hath light with darkness? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? We are asked in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 16. We wish the question were harder to answer than it really is. The fact is, it is surprisingly easy and astonishingly revealing. Christianity has openly and apparently shamelessly accepted certain platonic doctrines which are contrary to biblical teaching, accepted them into the creeds of the Christian faith, and these creeds are taken as the standard of what Christians believe. In fact, they are now so universally believed that their origin is rarely, if ever, suspected, and their disagreement with Scripture is either not known or, for some reason, not mentioned. Actually, to suggest that certain traditional doctrines are of Platonic, not Biblical origin, sometimes results in one being classified as cultist or heretic. Yet recognized church historians recall the facts of the acceptance of Platonic doctrines by the church in the early centuries of the Christian era. Also of the wholesale fusion, as one reliable source terms it, of the religion of the New Testament with a Platonic tradition of Greek philosophy in the 4th or early 5th centuries AD. To be more specific, in these introductory remarks, it will suffice to say that the area of Christian doctrine most seriously and damagingly affected by Platonic influence is the doctrine of man, comprehensively the nature and destiny of man. This category or section of Christian doctrine is second only to the doctrine of the Godhead. 
After knowing God, we need to know man. For this important reason, any diversion from the biblical teaching about man is particularly serious, and we wince to recall how many there are and how acceptable they are. The doctrine of man embraces principally the following three divisions. One, the nature of man, answering the question of Psalm 8.4, what is man? Two, death, as an event and as a state, answering the question of Job 14.10, man dieth, giveth up the ghost, and where is he? And three, future events relating to man including the resurrection, judgment, the reward of the believer, and the lot of the unrepentant. Most of our teaching today in these areas is based on a premise which is not biblical, but platonic, on the teaching of the immortality of the soul. This statement, rather candid and surprising to some, is early defended in this thesis. The three proposed sections of this study would include one, which will be entitled The Issue, will explain the term Platonic, draw attention to the Platonic doctrines which seem to have been espoused by Christians, and to the contrasting biblical teaching. Secondly, it will trace the historic development of this takeover then this information will automatically reveal the seriousness of the issue. Section 2, titled The Challenge, will present the various aspects of challenge created by this present, this presented situation. Section 3, entitled The Response, will analyse the reaction which should characterise an open-minded consideration of the whole tragic situation. Section 1, the issue, and chapter 1, entitled The Meaning of Platonism and Its Teaching Concerning the Nature and Destiny of Man. The term Platonism obviously refers to the philosophy of Plato, approximately 427 to 347 BC, who is recognized as one of the greatest representatives and propounders by voice and pen of Greek or Hellenistic philosophy. The areas of Platonic philosophy which have most extensively, profoundly and of course gravely influenced Christianity are his teaching concerning one, the nature of man, theologically known as anthropology, two, death or thanatology, and three, future events known as eschatology, or the science of last things. These topics will be taken in order. 1. Anthropology, the science of man. In regard to man, Plato propounds what is known as anthropological dualism, which states that man is composed of two original, separable parts, an inferior, material and mortal part, the body, and a superior, immaterial, and immortal part, the soul. Since he considers the soul to be the real person, to him man is a quote-unquote 
spiritual being. Here are his own words. Man's concern is not for the body that dies, but as far as he can, he stands aloof from that and turns towards the soul. The soul is most like the divine and immortal. The body is most like the human and mortal. Second, thanatology, the science of death. Plato teaches that the, only the body dies, not the soul, the real person. To him, death is a separation of the soul from its quote-unquote prison, the body. Here again are his words. Do we think there is such a thing as death? Is it anything more than the separation of the soul from the body? Then quoting Socrates, about his, who was about to take the poison, don't let him worry for me, or say at my funeral that he is laying out Socrates. Be confident and say you are burying my body. Thirdly, eschatology, the science of last things. Plato anticipates bliss in God's presence. He quotes Socrates as saying, I quote, When I have drunk the potion, I shall not be here then with you. I shall have gone clear away to some bliss of the blessed. Then Plato says of, Plato says of himself, When the man dies, the visible part of him, the body, will dissolve and disappear. But the soul, the unseen part, goes to another place, noble and pure and unseen, to the presence of the good and wise God, where, if God will, my own soul must go very soon. It goes away into the unseen, which is like itself, divine and immortal, where, on arrival, it has the opportunity to be happy, freed from wandering and folly and fears and wild loves and all other human ills. Just briefly in passing, do we not recognize already phraseology with which the Church is, generally speaking, familiar? But let us move now to consideration of the biblical teaching on these three basic topics. 1. Concerning man. The Bible teaches that man is a simple unit of dust. We read in Genesis 2.7 that, quote, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. God said to Adam, Genesis 3.19, Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Abraham testified in Genesis 18.27, I am nothing but dust and ashes. And David in Psalm 103.14 says, He remembers that we are dust. Into the nostrils of this form of dust, God breathed the breath of life, or life spirit, as recorded in Genesis 2.7, phrase B. Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The Amplified Version says the breath or spirit of life. Two ways of translating the same Hebrew word, breath or spirit. Interestingly enough, Job, using the typical Hebrew poetic way of expressing a truth by the employment of synonyms in parallel lines, says, quoting from Job 33.4, 
The Spirit of God hath made me, Amplified says, stirred me up, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. And in further reference, Job 27.3, he says, As long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils. The man of dust was thus animated by the breath or spirit of life, as stated in the last section of Genesis 2.7. Man became a living soul or living being in the NIV, the NASB and the Amplified Version. A simple equation may assist in understanding this and related subjects. It is this. Dust plus breath equals a living being. It is important, very important, to note that the inbreathing of God's breath did not add a second element to the nature of man. It did no more than animate the dust. Dr. Eugene E. Carpenter, in the, handi- in the handiwork of God in creation, states very emphatically that, quote, The breath of life is merely a way of saying that man was animated by God's impartation of breath. The Hebrew word nishma does not denote some divine element that God imparted to Adam. God did not impregnate an already living being with divine elements in order to make a man. Nowhere is dust used to indicate a previously living being. Secondly, death. The Bible defines and describes death both as an event and as a state. It states so clearly and unmistakably that when God takes back the life breath or life spirit which he loaned man, there will be nothing left but dust. Note some of the scriptures which define the event of death. Job's remarkable insight and understanding of the event of death is seen in chapter 34, verses 14 and 15. Quoting from him, If it were his intention, and he withdrew his spirit, his breath, all mankind would perish together, and man would return to dust. Words almost identical are found in Psalm 104.29. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Significantly stated, their dust. In Ecclesiastes 3.20, the statement is made concerning both man and animals that, quote, all are of dust and all turn to dust again. And in 12.7, The dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit or breath returns to God who gave it. As an equation, this is the inversion of the creation equation above. A living being minus breath equals dust. Note also the biblical description of the state of death. In the first place, the Bible makes it clear that the dead are totally unconscious. Ecclesiastes 9.5 states that, quote, the dead know not anything. NIV says know nothing. 
His spirit departs, the psalmist says, and in that very day his thoughts perish. NIV says his plans come to nothing. And in Psalm 115, 17 we read, The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. The most beautiful, comprehensive and comforting biblical term describing death is the word sleep. Job's understanding is very precious and informative. His words in Job 14.12 refer basically to the fact that the dead are asleep, but also make clear that the great future event of purification and restoration of all things, as quote from Acts 3.21, will be the time of their awakening. This is a quotation. So man lieth down and riseth not, till the heavens be no more. They shall not awake, nor be roused out of their sleep. The term is later used by Jesus in John 11, 11 concerning Lazarus. Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. Peter, in reference to David in Acts 13.36, says, David, after he had served his generation, fell asleep. We should note in passing that Peter had said earlier concerning David in Acts 2, 29 and 34 that he is dead and buried and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. He is not ascended into heaven. The dead are thus awaiting the resurrection which will be, of course, at Christ's return. Again we remark, remark on the knowledge of Job as we quote his anticipation of the next great event. Job 14, 14 and 15 All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change comes. Thou shalt call and I will answer thee. Thou wilt have a desire to the work of thine hands. NIV says you will long for the creature your hands have made. Daniel was told, Daniel 12.13, to rest and at the end of the days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Thirdly, future events in the Bible. We have just seen that future events for the Old Testament believer begin with the resurrection. The Bible indicates that this is the same for New Testament believers. They are included in the many of Daniel 12.2, which reads, Many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. With abundant confirmation in the New Testament scriptures, for example, God, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, as we read in Hebrews 13.20, will bring, as he did Jesus, those who are fallen asleep. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 Romans 8.11 repeats almost verbatim, quote, He that raised up Christ, Christ from the dead shall also give life to your mortal bodies. And twice in his writing to the Corinthians, Paul states that God who raised the Lord will also raise us. 1 Corinthians 6.14 and 2 Corinthians 4.14 Then, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 54, Then 
shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory when we hear preachers quote in church and they quote particularly at the tombstone to the grave that death is swallowed up in victory if death was swallowed up in victory the victory of life we would not be dying Paul says then that is to say not yet death is still victorious people are still dying people are still being buried people are remaining dead the answer is when God brings us back from the dead as he did Christ death will be swallowed up in victory and at the same time in the saying in the words of Jesus Matthew 16 18 the gates of Hades shall not prevail anticipation of the resurrection also reassures believers of their earthly rule and inheritance proclaimed according to Matthew 25 31-34 by the Son of Man as he comes in glory and sits upon the throne of his glory and here are his words come ye blessed of my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world Peter briefly describes the scene of the renewed earth and what he had earlier called the restoration of all things when he spoke in Acts 3.21 and this is from Peter 2 Peter 3.13 we according to his promise look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness by the term new earth in the scriptures it is the term does not mean a new earth made but an earth made new these positive promises and proclamations along with such negative statements of Jesus as for example no one has ever gone into heaven except the son of man John 3.13 or where I am going you cannot come which comes for the third time in John 13.33 show how the platonic hope of being in the presence of God at death is totally contrary to the teaching of scripture what then is man the question comes in Psalm 8.4 and the scriptures Genesis through the New Testament tell us the following man was made on the earth made of earth made to rule over the earth made to inherit the earth he will die on the earth will be buried in the earth will become earth again will sleep in the earth then will rise from the earth be judged on the earth he will be rewarded on the earth or punished on the earth he will be reinstated as ruler over the earth and will inherit the earth or he will be consumed out of the earth really sounds as though he is an earth creature and so he is 
We present next a brief historical outline of the Platonization of Christianity. Platonization of Christianity refers to the formulation of Christian doctrine and creed, if it can still be called Christian, according to the teaching of Plato. For example, we quoted Plato as saying, quote, The soul is immortal. Now listen to a statement from the Handbook of Doctrine of a prominent evangelical denomination. It reads, quote, The soul is immortal. That is, it will live on after the death of the body. The same source states that death is the separation of the soul from the body. Now compare Plato's statement in the earlier pages. We quote him as saying, Death is it anything more than the separation of the soul from the body? Here are two basic doctrinal, actually anthropological statements taken from Platonic philosophy. Since they are not biblical but Platonic, they exemplify Platonic Christianity. This is what we are writing about. The origin of the doctrine of the immortality of the soul we have attributed the traditional belief in instant heaven and endless hell to Plato's teaching on the immortality of the soul. Since we are speaking now about the historical development of doctrine, we have to make it clear that the doctrine of the immortality of the soul did not originate with Plato. The ancient and perhaps earliest known civilizations of Egypt and Babylon made provision for the after-death experiences quote-unquote of their deceased as exemplified by such things as boats, hunting equipment and provisions in the pyramids. But earlier than the earliest recorded civilizations we have a documented record of belief in the immortality of the soul. It is from the first two chapters of the Bible in the story of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden was a tree called in the Bible the tree of life. This term obviously referred to eternal life or immortality. Since they were already living it is therefore helpful and clearer if we call it the tree of eternal life or the tree of immortality. Confirming this is the reference later by God to the fact that if they took of the fruit of this tree they would live forever. Now this is the story attached to the tree of immortality. Originally it was available. Genesis 2 verses 8 and 9 tell us of its being planted there in the God of Eden. And verse 16 says that they had permission to eat from it. They were told they could eat from every tree, any tree, except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So they were able to eat from the tree of immortality. That is to say, immortality was available. But, the question is, did they partake of it? Did they accept the immortality available? 
No, they did not. When they were cast out of the garden, God placed, placed cherubim at the entrance. We are told why they were cast out, and we are told why the cherubim were placed there. They were cast out, it is expressly and unmistakably stated, I quote in Genesis 3.22, lest they take of a tree of immortality and eat and live forever. The cherubim were placed there, it is equally unmistakably stated, quote, to guard the way to the tree of immortality. That's verse 24. What could be clearer than the fact that now the opportunity of immortality was lost, was forfeited? Until when? Will it be available again? If so, when? The answer is not until the restoration of all things. This is a very basic and meaningful phrase that in Acts 3.21, the restoration of all things, that includes Eden. Now it means that the tree of immortality will be available again. In Revelation 2.7 we read that to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of immortality which is in the paradise of God. And we read in 22, 22nd chapter, verses 2 and 14, that those who overcome will enter in through the gates into the city and have right to the tree of immortality. We have still to identify the originator of the fable that man, quote-unquote, will not surely die and who said you are immortal this we know to have come from the mouth of the serpent Genesis 3-4 of Satan think for a moment of what we call Eden's fork road from the garden of Eden the road of religious philosophy was forked it was a choice of two directions two religious philosophies had been formulated the first, which was God's, stated, You will surely die. You are mortal. That's in Genesis 2.17. The second, which was Satan's philosophy, stated, You will not surely die. You are immortal. Genesis 3.4 Man makes his choice. Which philosophy, which fork of the road to take? We gather that every religious system, philosophy, denomination, creed or cult follows one or the other of these branches of theology. Either God's, based on man is a mortal creature, or Satan's, that man is an immortal creature. The historical glimpses below will give examples of the various choices made. Let us note first for our encouragement or reproof as the case may be a few who followed God's fork road. Consider Abraham who testified in Genesis 18.27 I am nothing but dust and ashes. His philosophy of death, resurrection 
and reward is illustrated in chapter 23 verses 4 through 9 of Genesis by his purchase of a burial property in the land which he is due to possess although as yet only a stranger and sojourner in it. Following his admirable faith and example, Jacob, as recorded in Genesis 49, 29-33, insisted on being buried in the promised land to be ready and on the spot for the resurrection and inheritance. And subsequently, Joseph, in chapter 50, verse 25 of Genesis, made the children of Israel swear an oath that they would carry his bones back to the promised land when God opened up the way for their return. Father and son could be said to make the choice attributed earlier to Moses quote, to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the treasures in Egypt. We have earlier quoted the testimony of Job Job 33, 4, etc., revealing in a remarkable fashion his clear understanding of the nature of man, of death, of the future. He was clearly on God's fork road. Let us pursue now some historical highlights concerning those who chose Satan's fork road. We have already spoken about the early civilizations of Egypt and Babylon on Satan's immortality fork. Continuing down this fork, we are told of the wisdom lovers, we call them philosophers, of Greece, including the predominant Plato, who envied, studied, and then embraced the wisdom of Egypt, and very soon were influential propounders, as we earlier saw, of the immortality of the soul, its flight after death to the heavenly realm and other outgrowing fallacies. Next, there is one more item of historical news before we actually come to the adoption of Platonism by Christians. It is a sad story. Sad because it concerns God's own chosen people, the Jews, descendants of Abraham and the patriarchs, who were supposed to stand out as faithful to God in the midst of satanic philosophical influence, but instead succumbed to it. The late George F. Fisher, once esteemed professor of ecclesiastical history at Yale University, makes this observation, I quote, At Alexandria arose a peculiar type of Jewish theology in which the Platonic philosophy was curiously blended with Old Testament teaching. He does not have an exclamation mark, but in my note I have an exclamation mark after that daring statement. What communion hath light with darkness, the scriptures ask? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Since it was through a Jewish convert to Plato that Platonism made its early inroads into Christian theology, the above records lead automatically into this, our next consideration. One of the Jewish philosophers influenced, as just mentioned, by Platonic philosophy 
was the renowned Philo, who taught in the University of Alexandria, blending, as Dr. Fisher points out, I'm quoting, Plato's teaching with the doctrine of Moses and the prophets, and producing what is called the quote-unquote Alexandrian theology, by which the Old Testament had been made to echo with a modified sound the teaching of the Greek schools of thought. The more contemporary voice of Kenneth Scott Latourette confirms this observation as follows, quoting from Latourette, Platonism had a marked influence on Christianity. It entered from many channels, among them the Hellenistic Jew Philo, or Philo, who was utilised by some early Christian writers. As the Christian community grew in Alexandria, the Alexandrian theory, theology, pardon me, according to Fisher, made the first serious attempt among those who adhered to the great facts and truths of the gospel to adjust the relations of Christian doctrine to reason and philosophy, to adjust the relations of Christianity doctrine, Christian doctrine, to reason and philosophy. Does God's word need to be adjusted, to be made exact and fit in, to be made to agree with other philosophies? The word of God needs no adjusting, certainly not to Greek philosophy, but it has been. These lines cannot pass without a word of comment. We consider it impertinence, yea, insolence, to suggest that the scriptures are unreasonable and unphilosophical unless complemented by Platonic philosophy. Plato has to bring reason and sense and reason and philosophy to the Bible teaching to, to complete it, to complement it. The noticeable outcome today in the case of theologians who have sought to follow this erroneous path and combine Plato with the Bible is total and pitiful confusion as they seek to give man an immortal soul and take him safely to heaven. Let's think of the one or two of the key Platonic Christian leaders of the 2nd and 3rd centuries. As we move into the 2nd and 3rd centuries of the Christian era, we find Platonism increasingly accepted. The majority of scholars, it is thought, almost unconsciously espoused and taught Platonic doctrine, without feeling any necessity to explain why, still less to apologise. Tradition had taken so firm a grip, how like today. However, mention of two outstanding and outspoken teachers will perhaps help to reinforce in our mind the seriousness of the situation. Consider firstly, if you will, the words of Tertullian, about 160 to 230 AD, a highly educated priest of Carthage in the Roman province of North Africa, of Africa and literary genius in the Latin tongue. He was the originator of Christian writings in the Latin tongue. After over a century of restrictions to Greeks, to Greek, the Greek tongue, 
Here are his words taken from, quote, the Anti-Nicene Fathers. I may use the opinion of Plato when he declares that every soul is immortal. Who gave him right, permission to use the opinion of Plato in preference to the opinion of God in the Bible? The second origin, about 20 years later, an illustrious scholar and thinker, a pioneer in systematic theology in Alexandria, has to his name a work entitled, this is the title of his work, Christian Platonist of Alexandria. How dare such a thing be published? How would a treatise on Christian Platonists of America be received today? It would not be a difficult work to edit. According to the Encyclopedia Americana, Origen's one achievement was to give philosophy a place in the creeds of the church. An achievement to lament. What concord hath Christ with Plato? Next, and the most devastating event in the takeover of Platonism, which we are calling fusion, diffusion and confusion. Dr. George Parker Fisher remarks that Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, was, quote, steeped in a Platonic spirit. We consider this a very mild and diplomatically expressed observation in the light of two statements concerning him from the Encyclopedia Britannica, of which the first states, I quote, his mind was the crucible in which the religion of the New Testament was most completely fused with the Platonic tradition of Greek philosophy. Visualize the scene in the high school science laboratory where two distinct metals are placed in a crucible above the Bunsen burner and thereby a new substance, an alloy, is produced. Augustine placed Christianity and Platonism in the crucible of his mind, fused them together and produced a new Christianity, an alloy, which could be called nothing more or less than Platonic Christianity. But this is not all. A second quotation from the Encyclopedia Britannica states, His mind was also the conduit by which the product of this fusion was transmitted to the Christendoms of medieval Catholicism and Renaissance Protestantism. This statement very eloquently describes how through the intricate pipeline of his powerful worldwide influence, Augustine's new alloy, Platonic Christianity, was diffused throughout Roman Catholic and Protestant denominations. We might add here that the world of Augustine's day has expanded considerably, but missionaries, many with Augustine's alloy of Christianity, have reached its extremity.
and all around us and from all around the world can be heard and read from pulpit, seminary, podium and television in books, magazines and Sunday school quarterlies this very same Platonic Christianity. It is also evident that the fusion of Plato and the Bible and the diffusion of the alloy thus produced have resulted in the confusion to which we earlier made brief reference. The appalling ignorance concerning the nature and destiny of man. We hear that man has an immortal soul which will live forever in heaven or hell. And in a few minutes we hear fear not man but fear him who is able to destroy soul and body in hell. Wish that speaker could attribute to his audience enough common reasoning to see that he's contradicting himself. We heard recently this, Jesus suffered the torments of hell for us. Augustine is said to have shaped the basic western concept of the soul. He certainly has made it a peculiar shape. Our question would be, since it was thus shaped more than 1500 years ago, is there any hope of reshaping it according to biblical pattern? Or has it already set too hard? The seriousness of the issue we're going to consider from several aspects. We believe and we trust that you will be equally convinced as we proceed that Platonized Christianity is a very serious issue. Because in the first place, the threat and warnings related to Platonism have been largely unheeded. The philosophy of Plato was more to be feared by the Christian Church of the early centuries than Judaism. Since the philosophy of Plato constituted the culture of such a high percentage of Christians, it was not likely to be considered an enemy. The last thing we would want to be warned about would be our traditional beliefs. It is hard to admit, even when convinced, that we, our parents, our teachers, our textbooks, or our denomination, are wrong. Paul who of course understood the situation perfectly, warned of it, first of all in a general way, as in Acts 20, 29-30, where we read, After my departure shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. And then more specifically, in Colossians 2, 8, he identified the doctrinal error on the horizon. Beware that no man take you captive through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men. 
a clear reference to the teaching of Plato as we have quoted earlier. Secondly, this is serious because it indicates neglect of the word of God. We refer to the ignorance. Paul warned Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, that, quote, the time would come when they will not endure sound doctrine, shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. And this really seems to be the case in general. It is astounding how to note how few preachers, teachers and writers have carefully studied with unbiased mind such subjects as the nature and destiny of man, the meaning of soul, spirit, death, the intermediate state, the time, place and nature of the reward of the believer and the punishment of the lost. Like a man who refuses a complete set of good screwdrivers and socket tools, works on his car repairs with one old rusty adjustable wrench, or like and so they throw out most of the Bible teaching on these subjects and base their anthropology, their thanatology, and their eschatology on one favorite, totally misunderstood parable in Luke 16, 19-31. We refer to the rich man and Lazarus, which isn't even an eschatological tool at all. It's like trying to regulate the timing on your car with a potato peeler and a corkscrew. Sermons, Sunday school material, magazine articles, Christian books and tapes display this tragic ignorance. In such a situation, what hope has the average Christian reader or pew holder who never studies the Bible for himself or herself but drinks in Platonic philosophy as gospel truth. When blind leaders of the blind are contacted concerning their unbiblical teaching, they refer to the doctrinal statements of their denomination as if they were the ultimate criteria of truth. We need to write in letters of fire across the evangelical sky to the law and to the testimony if they speak not according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Isaiah 8.20 Thirdly, we see a reversal of God's word to suit our own platonic theology. Neglect is serious, as we hope the pre previous paragraph convinced the reader or listener. It is blameworthy and usually inexcusable. It leaves us open to error, to the reception of wrong instruction, and to the tendency of wrongly instructing others. There is, however, something more serious than neglect. It is the reversal of God's word to line up with our Platonic theology. Personally, we would rather someone neglect what we say to inattention, disregard, disinterest or preoccupation and to propagate 
as from us something we did not say or even to reverse what we said if this is unacceptable on the human level how can we estimate the gravity of treating God's word in this fashion yet this is done on several basic doctrinal issues let us give a few examples of a complete turning around of the word of God according to the scriptures the Christian is to quote wait for his son from heaven 1 Thessalonians 1.10 but the message of today's gospel so called is to go to his son to heaven while we are told specifically that the dwelling of God will be with men Platonic preachers tell us that the dwelling of men will be with God how would you feel lady if you asked your husband to call and ask your son and family to come for supper next week and he called them and said we are coming to your house for supper tonight yet this is how God's word is completely reversed apparently rejecting the teaching that quote the son of man will come and then will he reward each person Matthew 16:27. the message of the platonic preacher is is that whereas Jesus says in Revelation 22:12, behold I come quickly and my reward is with me don't come here for your reward I'm bringing it yet we hear many departed believers are said to have gone to their reward they also spoken of as being with the Lord in spite of Paul's clear statement and his expressed prayer that we be not ignorant concerning them who are asleep 1 Thessalonians 4.13 after which he points out that they and we shall be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord for the first time and so that is to say at that time and not before on that occasion and onwards shall we ever be with the Lord a fourth serious outcome of Platonic theology is the frequent curtailment of the auxiliary plan of redemption considering the four phases of redemption the promise and symbol of the, of the Redeemer Genesis 3.15 the seed of the woman shall bruise Satan's head and 21 making of the coats of skins a shedding of blood and then the redemptive work of Christ throughout the whole Gospels and then thirdly the redemption of our bodies Romans 8.23 and the redemption of creation Romans 8.19-22 very little if any is preached concerning the resurrection of believers at Christ's return since the invention of heaven this is no longer the believer's great anticipation as it was Paul's Philippians 3, 10-11 for example 
with the emphasis on heaven, particularly eternity in heaven, the redemption of creation, the restoration of all things, has largely faded into insignificance or on occasion given a cultist identification. Similarly, in the fifth paragraph, neglect of the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of heaven, to Paul, called another gospel, Galatians 1, 6-8, has just about replaced, especially orally, the biblically commanded, exemplified, and efficacious gospel of the kingdom. It is the gospel of the kingdom which will bring the king back. For then shall the end come, we read in Matthew 24, 14, and the king. Some seem to have little interest in this, so long as they can make heaven. Others, in fact many, want to combine the two. They say, let him come back and take us to heaven. Just as one error leads to another, and a wrong turning can lead one to a wrong destination, so the deceptive anticipation of heaven can lead to something else, the downgrading of the material. A new philosophy, easily identifiable as Platonic, teaches that the material, eternal, great planet Earth is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And makes us forget the Creator's expressed plan and intention, even millennia before he honoured the Earth with the sojourn and redemptive mission of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It makes us forget such specific statements as from Psalm 104.5 He set the earth on its foundations and it cannot be moved. Or Peter's expressed anticipation that we are looking forward to renewed heavens and a renewed earth, the home of righteousness. As well as we have seen as his reference to the restoration of all things. Acts 3.21 Dr. Eugene E. Carpenter in an admirable treatise on cosmology, points out that, I quote, As to the original creation, God is its perfect creator. As to the restoration and redemption of that original creation, he becomes its new creator, or, as more commonly termed, its redeemer. God's new creation, as we shall see, is very much related in nature purpose and goal to his first creation. He later inspiringly states that God did not create arbitrarily. He created material in the beginning that would be receptive to his further designs and goals. Note, as a further cause for concern, the extent and power and dominance of Platonic influence. This is indeed a cause for serious concern. Any tradition is domineering and enslaving. Theological tradition is a forged iron fetter. Anthropological, thanatological and eschatological traditions, doctrines of man, death and last things, are like the inner cell of Philippian jail.
I shall read in Acts 16, 24-26 where Paul and Silas were held. Nothing but an earthquake will release us. Experience of a geophysical or a mental theological earthquake is not pleasant, but it may have to come. However, we have to admit a milder and perhaps preferable way whereby God's truth may enter a prejudiced heart. Just ten verses earlier, in this same account in Act 16, and in the same city of Philippi, we read of Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened. Verse 14. This does not suggest an earthquake. It may have been the open-mindedness of the women's Bible class described in this context, which made Lydia willingly yield to the influences of the Holy Spirit through Paul's preaching. But there are more cases of hard-heartedness and closed-mindedness requiring an earthquake than there are of the Lydia type. Will Durant, in his monumental works, very pointedly accuses Plato of placing man's destiny, the ideal state, somewhere in heaven, eternally with God. Or, if this is lost, quote, in perpetual torment with the devil. No one will deny the extent and dominance of such beliefs, even if they are unaware of their satanic origin. Their dominance is further encouraged through their acceptance by such outstanding church leaders as Thomas Aquinas, John Wycliffe, John Huss and John Calvin, quoted by Will Durant, and down subsequent generations, of course, by preaching, church, church, radio, TV, tape ministry, by Christian literature, commentaries, Bible notes, stories, allegories, notably Pilgrim's Progress from the City of Destruction to the Celestial City, and by an abundance of devotional publications. Christian periodicals also abound in Platonic propaganda, but probably the most powerful influence is our hymnology, of which a great percentage of hymns take us to heaven in the last verse. Kenneth Scott Latourette, Prince of Church Historians, as he's called, not only emphasizes the effect of Platonism, or Neoplatonism, as it was later called, on Christian theology, but also stated his fear that, to quote, much that passes as gospel has sacrificed the essential features of the gospel. Consider now, from another angle, the, the betrayal of our Protestant heritage and trust in favor of Plato. How can we persist in calling ourselves Protestant when we no longer protest against the Platonic doctrines of the Church of Rome? Luther points out that it was the Pope, not the Bible, that taught the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. And Adam Clark, acknowledged prince of commentators, states that a doctrine that is not found in the Bible is not a biblical doctrine. Yet, strange to say, the editor's preface to his abridged 
commentary gives as the date gives us the date when he quote left for his eternal reward we don't think that Adam Clark found this in the Bible think too of the attitude shown toward truth bearers if the wrong attitudes manifested were against the truth bearers alone it would be the issue of least importance but since it is against the author of truth and the case of a quote inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least ye have done it unto me the situation is serious in that case what are the varying attitudes shown where truth is presented by the word of mouth or the printed page there are those who ignore the issues either completely by refusing literature boycotting Bible studies ignoring correspondence or avoiding constructive argument others present a lame excuse that they don't believe all that we say or quote unquote our interpretation the fact is that their very words betray them as those who contrary to the Thessalonians see 1 Thessalonians 2.13 when they received the word of God which they heard of us they received it not as the word of God which it is in truth but as the word of men whereas the Thessalonians we read when they receive it they receive it not as the word of men but as the word of God all depends how we receive God's word we put the blame on the person who quotes it saying that's your word or recognize the word of God another common attitude is procrastination it's very true that a thief is, it is truly a, a thief of our time their time and God's time they put the pressing issue on the back burner and never turn the gas on they imitate Felix's remark when I have a convenient season the new international version says when I find it convenient I will call for you Acts 24-25 it has taken some people a long time to find a convenient season many Christians testify to receiving fresh light from the scriptures very frequently yet when light on such primordial subjects is revealed to them they reject it and bring deeper darkness upon themselves as the scripture warns walk while you have the light lest darkness come upon you that's John 12:35. the form and measure of rejection varies some will use strong terms such as error heresy and unbiblical without pointing out what, the, what they think is error let alone discuss it with an open bible others take the time to sincerely list for example passages which they think prove that we go to heaven but will not discuss these passages which are obviously taken out of context and so misinterpreted we suppose that the extreme attitude toward truth bearers 
would be the classifying of them as cultists, sometimes mentioning the very cult they have in mind. Such malediction is pathetic to hear, because it can but create pity and concern for such blindness and ignorance. Let us summarize briefly the seriousness of the issue as we as we have seen it. It represents a failure to heed Paul's warnings against the threatening inroads of Platonic philosophy. It indicates neglect and ignorance of the teaching of the Word of God on these particular subjects related to the nature and destiny of man. It includes the preaching as gospel truth, things which the scriptures do not say, and many times turning God's word around to suit popular tradition. It largely neglects emphasis on two of the four phases of redemption, the redemption of our bodies and the redemption of creation. It downgrades the material, the human body, and our eternal great planet Earth. It is a betrayal of our Protestant trust. It denounces truth-bearers as heretic, without being willing to engage in prayerful, open-minded Bible study of the issues under consideration. And it replaces the gospel of the kingdom, which will bring the back of the king, by the gospel of heaven. The challenge is the title of section 2. Is there a challenge? Is the challenge real or imaginary? Well, when God says thou art dust, and Plato says thou art spirit, and the Christian church sides with Plato, when God says thou shalt surely die, and Plato says, is there such a thing as death? Is it anything more than the separation of the soul from the body? and the Christian church accepts Plato, when the Bible says that the Christian's future depends on the resurrection, and Plato teaches instant heaven, and the Christian creed acknowledges Plato, when scripture teaches destruction, annihilation of the wicked, and Dante passes them through successive pages of endless torment, and the Christian church accepts Dante, we have not only an unprecedented, unsurpassingly tragic situation, we have also a challenge. This section will treat the nature of the challenge. And the first challenge is the challenge of ignorance. Under this heading, we are to consider for a few moments a very deplorable and distressing area of ignorance. Ignorance in relation to the second most important topic of Christian doctrine. The most important doctrine, topic of Christian doctrine is the doctrine of the Godhead. Second only to this is the doctrine of man, his nature, the purpose of his creation, the meaning of death, the intermediate state, the resurrection, the judgment day, the destiny of the saved, and the lot of the unrepentant. Men always did ask, and always will ask, for information on these topics. The Bible gives ample, clear answers, but the acceptance of Plato, as we have described above, has deprived man, in general, of the truth. 
What can be done about this? It is indeed a challenge. What do we mean by ignorance? The challenge of ignorance. The word ignorance, the dictionary tells us, means lack of knowledge in general or in relation to a particular subject. We are talking about a particular subject, the nature and destiny of man. In theological terms, anthropology, thanatology and eschatology. A study of the word ignorance in the Bible is very enlightening. The Hebrew word shaga, occurring 39 times, conveys the thought of unintentional, rather unintentionally, inadvertently going astray, erring being deceived, mistaken, or misdirected. Notice the emphasis on unintentionally and inadvertently. Now it is most important that we understand that these expressions in the original tongue do not mean ignorant in the sense of stupid, uneducated, uncouth, or know-nothing. Paul probably one of the most educated of Jewish rabbis, used them of himself in writing to Timothy, a younger and less educated man. Let us note in 1 Timothy 1, 12 and 13, as it has been as great bearing on what we wish to convey at this moment. This scripture reads, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, that is, towards the Christians, if you recall, as he acknowledged the death of Stephen and then sought others to bring to trial. But he continues, But I obtained mercy. How come? Why? When? Because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. The light of the that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Messiah, had not yet dawned upon him. So ignorance means lack of light, and through that lack of light, the mis misunderstanding of Scripture, misinterpretation, and erroneous teaching of others. Here was a trained religious worker, devoted to his cause, earnestly opposed against what he considered error through lack of light concerning Jesus of Nazareth as the true Messiah. Once the light shined in and he submitted to it and followed it, he found mercy and a mission, a ministry. When into the hearts and minds of those presently persecuting truth-bearers, the light shines, they too will have a new ministry it will be for instead of against the truth what is platonic ignorance platonic ignorance is brought about through instruction and tradition an understanding of the biblical word repent is necessary for a satisfactory answer to this question what can repent mean in the case of Christians 
who subscribe to the anti-biblical philosophies of Plato. The answer could not be simpler, just what the word says. The Greek word Paul uses, metanoia, we are familiar with the word metamorphosis, which means a change of form. Metanoia means a change of mind. Zodiac's lexicon defines it as, quote, a change of mind and thought, consequent to after knowledge. That suggests ignorance previously. When knowledge comes, when light comes, then there is a change of mind and thought. That is repentance, and that is acceptable with God. The sinner's repentance required a change of mind and thought about God and about Jesus Christ, Christianity, and his own lifestyle. The Platonic Christian requires a change of mind about his doctrines, the doctrines of Plato, which he has adopted or inherited. So when after knowledge or further light reveals his inadvertent, unintentional errors, and maybe his erroneous instruction of others, he, quote-unquote, changes his mind and says so. Failing to do this, persisting in error, for whatever reason, after the knowledge of the truth, is called willful ignorance and shuts the door to mercy. But if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted. Second Corinthians eight twelve. We've just quoted this verse, Second Corinthians eight twelve. It is one of great encouragement to those who, as Hebrews three eight says, today hear his voice and harden not their heart. Note also the following in Psalm one hundred nineteen thirty The entrance of thy word giveth light. And John 16.13 The Spirit of Truth will guide you into all truth. And Philippians 3.15 If on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. That's encouraging. Benjamin Disraeli said, quote, To be conscious that you are ignorant of the facts is a great step to knowledge. The next steps after that would be, one, to study the clear Bible-wide meaning of each issue, death, resurrection, reward, punishment, or whatever, with open heart and mind. Secondly, to recognize through the scriptures, to recognize and reject completely every error hitherto espoused. He cannot serve God and Plato. Christ and Plato. Three, fill the vacancies thus created with abundant stores of scripture, lest a heart and mind empty and swept be repossessed by further error. Then there is the challenge of tradition. In the previous chapter, the challenge of ignorance, we spoke of inadvertent, unintentional error often through being misled and resulting in the misleading of others. This chapter is different. It treats what might be a yet more serious challenge, the challenge of tradition. Which is worse, to have unintentionally erred from the truth, to have been unconsciously 
inadvertently misled or on the other hand to know the teaching of God's word but refuse it because it does not tally with our tradition we would say the latter what do we mean by tradition the word tradition comes from a root meaning to transmit or pass on to others usually by word of mouth which refers to an oral form of sharing of information beliefs and customs from father to son from ancestors to posterity it is usually accepted as authentic unquestionable truth the Jews had a collection of traditional beliefs doctrines which they believed to have been communicated by God to Moses although not found in the written law in say the Pentateuch Christians all have traditional beliefs which have been passed down through many generations many centuries and although they are not founded on the Bible and are sometimes contrary to the Bible as we have seen they are accepted endeared and clung to tenaciously as being infallible some of course were accepted so many centuries ago that they found their way into the creeds of the church there was no disagreement about their being false of error they were voted on unanimously and so they became each one separately an I believe phrase but we didn't know about church history when we first started to say I believe I believe we knew that grandma believed it so it must be true in fact when we think of it everyone believes it so who would dream of doubting it who even among our preachers and teachers our writers and Sunday school teachers would inquire were the church council of such and so, so many years AD got it from to put it in the creed who would ask such a question who would bother it's just what we believe what are the, po- the popular platonic traditions we've mentioned some we have in, seen in our earlier brief survey of doctrinal events in church history that very early in the history of Christianity some respected leaders of the church they're called fathers in acknowledgement of their dignity their trustworthiness and their scholarship accepted platonic philosophical teachings the most serious tenet of faith adopted from Plato and which forms the basis of a dozen outstanding erroneous doctrines and beliefs is the immortality of the soul whether we follow our great evangelists who insist that at death the soul leaves the body for another form of life or that assistant evangelists who say that it is not the soul but the spirit of the believer which goes to heaven we mentioned the state of confusion there is and so we find this to dispute among co-workers or as a third choice are denomination evangelists who want to please the whole congregation and say that the soul or spirit goes to heaven they probably don't know the difference between soul and spirit and we don't even know what the words mean they say so what matters we know we're going to heaven so let's prepare others to go that's the important issue they would say the point is they would continue we have an immortal soul or spirit on our hands no one doubts that so we have to cater for it at the death of the body the Egyptians did 
so we Christians would have to cater for this immortal soul or spirit. For the Egyptians, as the earliest known, and the multitude of pagan religionists, the immortality of the soul bore the fruit of transmigration of spirit, reincarnation. The Christian repudiates this, but takes from the same tree the fruits of instant heaven and permanent hell. In fact, one is hardly considered a Christian as he does. Yet these fruits grow from the root of the immortality of the soul and we, if we adopt them, are as much to blame as those who believe in reincarnation. And so, hopelessly and irremediably, it seems, attached are we to a tradition that we will not even listen to a suggestion of studying its origin in case we see that it dates back to the Garden of Eden and its originator is the serpent. On the other hand, we search out scriptures which at least seem to suggest heaven or whatever we are trying to prove at that particular time. We preach them, we pass them around by word and print and especially lyric from our hymn books and hoping we don't have any Bible students in the audience, we are happy and successful. Let's all stand, we say, take the hand of the person next to you, old man or attractive young lady, doesn't matter which, whether she wants it or not, of course, and we'll all sing when we get to heaven, when we all get to heaven. Friends, is it any wonder that everyone believes it? He's a real oddball who doesn't. No, he's a heretic. A cultist. He's dangerous. We must love him, but at a distance. Not be contaminated. We must warn people about him. Such is tradition. This is what we're writing about. It is the acceptance of teaching of the past, even when history and a few open-minded teachers seek to point out its pagan satanic origin and cling into it, or remaining clung by it at all costs that is tradition how serious it is, is this case the tonic tradition features the gospel of heaven which Paul would call another gospel for he never preached it note Galatians 1.6 for that reference it illustrates also those mentioned in Romans 10.2 who have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge who pitifully spend great energy and preach so enthusiastically a gospel which is not Paul's not biblical not only does Paul denounce any gospel which was different the NIV calls it from his he clearly identifies the kind of other gospel which he anticipated rising, a platonic gospel, and warned that it would become an irresistible, enslaving captivity. Note, as we did earlier about this in Colossians 2.8, Beware, be on your guard, lest any man carry you off as spoil, take you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy after the tradition what tradition? The tradition of men. The amplified version enlarges on the word deceptive as indicating, quote, 
idle fancies and plain nonsense. A very clear identification of what is taught in connection with future life. This is we feel this we feel is very descriptive of popular traditions relating to what is commonly called the hereafter. No wonder Jesus warned against the determination to keep one's tradition by the common determination today. I'm going to keep what I believe. And that, as Jesus also said, at the expense of the truth of God's word, we say this is serious. There is the challenge of light. This chapter will treat the subject of light and the challenge it involves. Light is important in the physical world, but how much more important it is in the spiritual sense. Spiritual light is valuable, appreciated and indispensable, not only for salvation but for subsequent spiritual crises. And also, or equally so, or perhaps more so, for continued spiritual growth by both negative and positive mental processes, that is, by the elimination of revealed errors and the accumulation of revealed truths, light is contributed, yea, it is essential to acceptable service. Think of the need of light now. When the earth was, we quote, without form and void, when darkness was upon the face of the deep, the Spirit of God moved and God said let there be light we can by no means to say today that the Christian world the church is without form form, organization boards, committees subcommittees sub-subcommittees abound but it does seem it does seem that the darkness of pagan philosophy, in spite of Paul's warning every one night and day with tears, Acts 20.31, has spread far and wide since its reception by early church fathers and its amalgamation with Christianity by Augustine. And we need a repetition of God's effective words, let there be light and the movement of the Holy Spirit again over the dark waters of Platonic Christianity. Light is a challenge. It is a twofold challenge. It is a challenge to those who receive it, on whom it shines, to respond to it. And it is a challenge to those who rejoice in it, to radiate it. What about receiving and responding? Those receiving light need certain characteristics of mind to benefit from the light given to them. They need in the first place a willing mind, for we have read earlier to Corinthians 8.12 states that if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted. Irrespective of education, position, knowledge of the scriptures or what have you, it is willingness that counts. Convince the man against his will He's of the same opinion still. There are enough like this. There are also many who still say, my mind is made up, don't convince me with the facts. So, 
unless we have right now, as we study this, a willing mind, there may really be no profit in continuing. If, on the other hand, the bright side, we do have a willing mind, let it be known and understood that we have all that is necessary for the moment, because God can work. The Holy Spirit will be neither grieved nor quenched. Second need expressed is meekness and humility. Now we said that willingness is all that is required for the moment for God to start working. Then why say meekness? That is not contradictory because willingness is the outcome of a meek and humble spirit and the meek he will guide. These first two expressed needs are passive. The third now is active. It is to activate the mind, the willing, the meek, humble mind. It is to follow the example of the Bereans, as recorded in Acts 17.11. We read that when they heard Paul preach, as they'd never heard preaching before, words that were contrary to their custom, their doctrine, their tradition, a new light seemed to be dawning on them, they turned to a diligent study of the word to see if this new teaching was in accord with the scriptures. Of course, anyone like them, like who, according to Acts 17, 11, search the scriptures daily, will indeed find, as they did, that these things are so. But we are reminded in 8, Isaiah 8.20 Anyone who does not speak according to this word has no light of dawn. The light has not dawned upon them yet. There are further negative requirements. For example, one needs to avoid seeking the praise of men. Matthew 12.43 And being sidetracked by what Jesus called blind leaders of the blind. For there are many of whom Paul would ask even today. Challenge. How can you dare to say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a beam in your own eye? Still no answer. So then came a clear command. First, take the beam out of your eye. First, the beam, followed by an explanation that then, and only then, would they, quote, see clearly to remove the speck from their brother's eye. That's from Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5. The disciples saw the grave situation of lawlessness around them and felt that it was their first duty to preach against this lawlessness. Jesus put their own need, their need of clear vision, as the priority issue. Christian vision today is largely impaired by the beam of Platonic philosophy. But Platonism has been amalgamated with Christianity for so long, particularly since Augustine's day, that very few Christians are conscious or knowledgeable of this fact they cannot believe it possible. 
and actually when they hear about it they are more irritated by this suggestion than by the beam in their eye so the situation remains their condition does not change they still cannot see clearly they cannot see what the Bible clearly says about the nature and destiny of man they cannot see what the Bible says about death about the reward of the believer about the punishment of the wicked they can see what the Pilgrim's Progress says and what Dante's Inferno and Milton's Paradise Lost portray they can accept the aberrations, the visions the hallucinations of a delirious loved one rather than the teaching of God's word they would rather believe a man who says he spent four days in heaven than to believe what Jesus said in John 3.13 that no one has ever gone into heaven except the Son of Man. Christian workers continue to teach, preach and counsel before they know the truth. To build and plant with no sure foundation or duly prepared soil. They profess to be representing truth but are propagating error. To be open for light from the word but have no light of dawn. To be walking in light but they ignore, refuse, reject and repudiate light and light bearers. They profess to be free but remain in bondage to denominational tradition. They profess to have the mind of Christ but teach the mind of their leaders, of writers, of commentators and consciously or unconsciously of Plato. While retaining the beam in their own eye they continue their concentration on casting out the speck from another's eye the issue is urgent the situation is serious we turn the page in a moment to help those who have cast out the beam and want to know how they can individually and collectively how they should respond to the challenge they have accepted but think of this again there is no ambiguity about Jesus' meaning when he says first first cast out the beam the dictionary defines the word as meaning foremost in position importance and worth beginning with preceding having precedence over everything else New Testament uses the word 60 times as an adverb and 95 times as an adjective it's important it's imperative it's an order the serious issue of Platonic Christianity explained and described in the first section of this presentation challenges us in the second section to give it first priority for then and we repeat then only will we see clearly see Let's turn to section 3 entitled The Response. Section 3 is addressed particularly to those who have understood section 1, the issue of Platonic Christi Christianity, in its origin, its implications, and its serious consequences. To those who have also accepted the challenge of section 2 in its many aspects, and who now ask, like Saul of Tarsus, when the light shone on him, What shall I do, Lord? Acts 9, 3 and 6 the answer to this question is generally speaking the same as that given to Paul get up, go and you will be told 
Once, like Paul, we have received the revelation and our radically mistaken theology are, uh, and we are smitten down in humble acknowledgement of truth which we long resisted, it is indeed time to arise to the challenge, time to get up and go and be assured of the direction of the Spirit that you will be told. But the Scriptures do analyze for us certain basic principles of attitude and action which we should bear in mind as we eagerly set out to respond to the serious widespread error. These principles are enumerated in the following pages. Our attitude should be that of emotion and devotion. Our action, negative and positive. So these topics will constitute the four chapters below. Considering, first of all, the emotional response. Emotion is described as strong, disturbing feeling a departure from the normal calm state. It is often an impulse to action. It could manifest itself in either joy and surprise or in varying degrees of opposite sentiments, maybe of grief, of disgust, or even of anger. Let us note how our emotions are manifest in consideration of Platonic Christianity. Biblically, they should manifest in the first place concern. Paul in Romans 9.2 testifies to, quote his words, great heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart. And in the related word in Romans 10.2 suggests a reason when he speaks of those who have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. Then in Galatians 1.6 and 5.7 he expresses great concern concerning those who were so soon removed unto another gospel. And he wonders, who did hinder you? Those who did run well. The contents of this, the context of this letter, of this latter concern, is the enforcement of Judaistic rights upon Gentile believers. But the greater threat of Greek philosophy against which Paul warned in Acts 20 men arising, speaking diverse things, and Colossians 2.8, the philosophy of vain deceit, was long his deepest concern. His emotion in Galatians 1, as he considered the preaching of a gospel other than the same one he preached, certainly reaches the stage, stage of righteous anger. For he preached neither immortality of the soul before the resurrection, nor heaven as the believer's destiny. This is cause for concern, cause to be upset. But if we are first upset, we will in due course be set up and up for useful service. There must be compassion. Compassion is a sentiment of sorrow, pity, sympathy, suffering along with another. The outstanding and appropriate example to quote is that of Jesus, who was moved with compassion, Mark 6.34, as he saw many people as sheep not having a shepherd. It seems that today there is a great shortage of, of, of shepherds, pastors, 
but the real need that faces us is that described by certain prophets of the Old Testament note for example the words of the Lord through Isaiah in Isaiah 3.12 O my people they which lead thee cause thee to err NISB says those who guide you lead you astray in Jeremiah 23.13 we read quote the preachers of Samaria cause my people to err and in verse 32 the Lord says I am against them that prophesy false dreams and cause my people to err anyone in error needs sympathy and compassion those in error through lack of a shepherd have greater need but what about those who have a shepherd but he leads them astray the word of the apostle of love in 1 John 3.17 could refer to such theological needs of which we speak which in some respects are more serious than material needs than this world's goods he says if any man sees his brother and fellow believer in need yet closes his heart of compassion against him how can the love of God live and remain in him Peter too suggests a relationship between compassion and the mind he says be ye all of one mind having compassion one of another Peter 3 8 we recall an earlier reference to being transformed by the renewing of our mind Romans 12 2 perhaps the outstanding scripture combining compassion and ignorance ignorance in the sense of being unintentional error as discussed above as those embracing platonic Christianity is the reference in Hebrews 5 2 to the high priest who can have compassion on the ignorant we need as emotionally a sense of inadequacy there is, there is need in our response for a sense of inadequacy in ourselves this is contrary to modern psychology which must say I can now we are not su- suggesting that we say I can't Jeremiah was reproved for saying this we are to say without thee we can do nothing John 15:5. the same breath I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me Philippians 4:13. It is right to question who is sufficient for these things. 2 Corinthians 2.16 If we add from chapter 3 verse 5 that our sufficiency is of God. This is a balance between our sense, our emotion, our feeling of inadequacy and the consciousness, this assurance of God's adequacy for us. He who said something that many forget I am but dust and ashes that's Abraham in Genesis 18.27 took the knife to slay his only son and heir accounting that God is able to raise him on the other hand let him that thinketh he standeth considers himself adequate take heed lest he fall as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.12 similar to Proverbs 16.18 that pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall there can be and should be an emotion of encouragement happily emotion 
can be of this type. In fact, we have just seen above that the natural outcome of a sense of inadequacy qualifies us for the promises of God's omnipotence. We have just quoted, our sufficiency is of God, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Think also of 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose the weak things of the world to put to shame the strong. And Mark 9.23, everything is possible for him that believes. Consider in the third place the instruments of strength which we possess, and on which alone we count. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Read in 2 Corinthians 10.4. And we are thinking about doctrines that have a very stronghold on Christians. Hebrews 4.12 is well known, but worth an encouraging glance again. It says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The thoughts and attitudes of the heart, did you say? Yes, and that is needed. Heart and head, mind and will have to work together here. And finally, we are perhaps encouraged most by Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Devotional response. Devotion means dedication and consecration to a specific purpose, to giving on one's attention and effort wholly to an object or cause. Total dedication exalted in the scriptures. Paul tells Timothy, meditate on these things, Give thyself wholly to them. The New American Standard Bible says, Be absorbed in them. 1 Timothy 4.15 A pre-translation of meditate is chew the cud. The thought is, we have swallowed quite a lot, but probably not digested it enough. So, in solitude and quietness, we need to bring the subjects up again and thoroughly absorb them and be absorbed in them. We have to be zealous. Paul tells Titus and us in Titus 2.15 that Christ's redemptive work should produce a people peculiarly his own and zealous to do what is good, eager and enthusiastic about good beneficial deeds. Zeal is taken to mean ardor, warm enthusiastic interest, and it is well illustrated by David's testimony concerning his devotion to the house of God. He says, Zeal for your house consumes me. King James Version says, Eats me up. Psalm 69.9 Obviously, what he means is that God's cause, God's truth, represented here by the expression God's house, engages all my attention and energy. There's the thought of being separated. This is the negative side of devotion. We are to be devoted and dedicated to, zealous for, but separated from, in the sense of being set apart for a specific mission or withdrawn from hindering situations. 
Paul again reminds the keen, keen young Timothy, really anxious to wage a good warfare, to fight a good fight, 1 Timothy 1.8, that no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs, gets entangled in the enterprises of civilian life, the Amplified Version says. He wants to please his commanding officer, the one who enlisted him, 2 Timothy 2.4. Devotion must be spirit-led. Sincere devotion involves continuous submission to the leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Since Paul first prayed, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Acts 9.6 And received the assurance, it shall be told thee, his life was clearly directed, particularly at specific perplexing moments, by the clear guidance of the Spirit, by either prevention, closing of the door, or urging, by vision and a welcoming call. Acts 16, 6-10 give a good example. Let us also recall how earlier than this the apostles were so frequently and so demonstratively led by the Holy Spirit. The success on the day of Pentecost was due to the fact that they spake as the Spirit gave them utterance or enabled them, Acts 2.4. People were, quote, not able to resist the Spirit by whom Stephen spoke, Acts 6.10. And both Philip, Acts 6.30, in contacting the Ethiopian, and Peter, in Acts 10.19-20, particularly in obeying the request of Cornelius, indicate guidance in an unusual, unexpected, but very successful and exemplary ministry. We have to be ready for such. With these and many more such encouragements and exhortations from the Word, let us give extra careful attention to both the constraints and the urges of the Spirit and when deeply conscious of the thing to do, obey in promptness and full trust. Devotion, as described in the above paragraphs, is both characteristic of and indispensable to a correct and successful response to the challenges under consideration. Dedication is probably nowhere more comprehensively and impressively articulated than in the lines of Francis Billy Havergal, the following couplets are perhaps most applicable to our present subject. Take my lips, and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my intellect, and use every power as thou shalt choose. Then there is a promotional response. And promotional response can in the first place be a negative response, which we'll consider first. Promotion is that which serves to move things forward, to achieve a goal, or that which contributes to prosperity, success, growth, and advancement of a cause or an enterprise. We have seen that our reaction to the challenge of Platonic Christianity must be characterized by emotion, by concern, compassion, a sense of inadequacy, and a sense of encouragement, and by devotion, a wholehearted dedication to the cause in general, and to the personal implications in particular, 
along with continuous leading of the Spirit in God's will for us. We now turn to the practical side to ask and answer the question, well, what exactly should we do? What is asked or required of dedicated workers for truth according to the capacity and calling of each individual? What are the duties and responsibilities of those who have received light and truth concerning particularly Platonic Christianity? All were very impressed by the spontaneous question of a lady in the Bible study one day, referring to the study folders which she had faithfully accumulated. She emotionally and sincerely asked, What do we do with all this knowledge? Good question. And this is what we are answering. The answer, the answers to this natural and necessary question are divided into two groups, which we are calling A and B. This chapter deals with A, the negative response, since it calls for negative rather than positive action. We have earlier, section 2, chapter 4, emphasized the necessity, value and priority of negative preaching. Negative response is as imperative and primordial as negative preaching. It is an absolutely essential prerequisite to effective positive action which follows. This will be seen in certain paragraphs below, but requires the repetition of an example given in section just mentioned, section 2, we refer to, Genesis, to Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 10, where we have the words, uproot, tear down, destroy, overthrow. These, as we mentioned, are the preliminary instructions given to young Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1.10 They are unusually strong, merciless, unmistakable and conclusive. There must be something seriously, fundamentally, foundationally, hopelessly and irremediably wrong. Wrongly built, wrongly constructed with God's people against whom such a verdict is pronounced. The more we recognize the multiplicity of erroneous shoots and fruits from the evil root of immortality, the sooner we conclude that the only solution is eradication, uproot this false doctrine, this evil root. The more we recognize the multiplicity of false hopes built on the transmigration of the human spirit at death, the sooner we conclude that the only solution is the bulldozer, that commissions such as Jeremiah's are today's need, that judgment must begin with the house of God, and it is time, as we read in 1 Peter 4.17. Another response, a negative response, is patient reproval. Reproof is a kindly attempt to correct a fault. This does not suggest weak, inefficient action. On the contrary, the word means to rebuke, which term, which term includes sternness. To refute, in the sense of disprove or prove to be false, erroneous, to overthrow by argument. Further, to rightly administer a proof, one must express a definite charge 
stating what and why he is reproving and anticipate conviction and acknowledgement of truth on the part of the one reproved. All this is, of course, the work of the Holy Spirit, not the person himself, the work of the Holy Spirit through the agency of God's servant and truth-bearer and the instrumentality of the scripture as we read in John 16, 8 when he comes, the Holy Spirit he will convict, he will reprove the world of guilt he will also reveal error as well as direct his truth-bearers in their efforts to convince those misled those under the direction and inspiration of the Holy Spirit the same word is used by Paul in Titus 2.15 where he tells Titus and us to quote speak, exhort and convict the NIV says rebuke the NASB says reprove with all authority not letting anyone despise or disregard you there is question, a place at times for sharp rebuke Rebuke is sometimes a synonym of reproof, as we just saw. However, the Greek word 2 Timothy 4.2, along with reprove, where we read reprove, rebuke, exhort, bears the thought more of a dutiful warning, not necessarily demanding, or perhaps not even expecting an answer, compliance, a compliance. When the penitent thief on the cross rebuked his fellow malefactor in Luke 23.40 he probably had little or no hope of his conversion he was fulfilling his duty in the form of a sharp reprimand the last phase phrase of 2 Timothy 4.2 reads with all long suffering and doctrine this is important to note the Christian duty is to reprove to kindly but forcefully convict of error through use of a spirit-directed word and to occasionally sharply rebuke even if attention is hardly expected but all this has to be done with long-suffering and with doctrine long-suffering means literally long-holding of the mind before action Doctrine in the scriptures refers specifically to the teaching of Christ and of the Lord and of the apostles. Thus, patience is exhorted and a clear understanding of the Bible doctrines under consideration is indispensable and must be in constant use. Consider someone on the wrong, as wrong, on the wrong road. We are told in a television painting lesson that the best teacher shows you where you are wrong if we some see someone going the wrong way expecting to find a filling station a shopping centre or a motel of that way and we know there are none it would be a moral duty to correct their wrong assumption or the false information they have received we tell the unsaved that they are on the wrong road will not find happiness that way what are we supposed to do in the case of Christians who have been misdirected who have received incorrect information about the meaning of death and 
have been given a false hope of going to heaven. We read in the scriptures that it is our duty to point out and prove their error. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Galatians 6, 1. There's another word used, and its meaning in English is not always true to the Greek. It is the word agonize. We usually consider the word agonize as meaning to suffer extreme pain of mind or body. Actually, the Greek word from which it is derived, agonizomai, has reference primarily to the tension, fear, pain and labour of a wrestling or boxing match or possibly some other competitive Greek game. In the context of this treatise, we hear Jude exhorting us to earnestly contend for the faith which is once delivered unto the saints. That's Jude 3. He is saying, prepare for tension, fear, pain and labor of almost a life and death contest. Not a fear or pain that shrinks from it, but fear and pain that spurs on to the uttermost expenditure of energy, strength, skill, mind and body. Agonize is the word that Jude is using. Contend. Agonize in defense of the faith once delivered unto the saints. Faith that was represented by that square of 16 bees the Bible Jude continues to speak of those of both past history and his own time who departed from the faith but although he does not express the same fear that Paul had of the inroads of Platonic philosophy his exhortation is equally applicable to our present Platonic era of the church what is the practical outworking of Jude's inspired command contend Today, the word implies a striving in discussion or debate to expose a biblically false tradition or teaching of the church, to assert, uphold, and defend the truth. However, this is presently an almost totally neglected aspect of Christian duty. A new refreshing example, a few refreshing examples of such a sense of need appear from time to time. Jerry Bryan in the Bible says, stated with a measure of anxiety, quote from him, surely any true fellowship and cooperative service for the Lord must be based upon the firm foundation of truth rather than on something which is called love after the truth of God's word has been set aside with a complaint that it is too divisive truth is divisive, that's just how love. The Bible does not teach agree to disagree. The Bible does not teach hold hands like little children and sing we are one in the bond of love. It does teach argue in defense of truth. Dr. Adam Clark states in his commentary quote, the doctrine which cannot stand the test of rational investigation cannot be true. 
the editor of Christianity Today, 11-21-86, said that, quote, the task of theology today is not to find a new message, but to make sure that the old, unchanging one is clear. Heresy hunting is something we must do. We would add that we must also check to see if we still have the old one unplatonized. The word contend, just quoted above, comes in Jude 3, earnestly contend for the truth, deserves a little further exposition and application. To contend means to strive, exert oneself in opposition, to engage in discussion, argument, debate. It includes the refuting or disproving and overthrowing of error and assertion, defense or upholding of truth. Earnestly signifies proceeding from an intense and serious state of mind with a solemnity due to weighty issues being involved. The art or practice of disputation or controversy in theological areas is called polemics and in accord with Jude 3 is a very important and indispensable practice. However, the scare and dislike of negatives has, as mentioned above, made this biblical pattern and example very unpopular. But that very dislike enforces the necessity of a negative. Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, successor in the pulpit of Westminster Chapel, London, to the world-renowned Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, deplores the lack in today's preaching of Paul's exemplary polemic argument. He states that, I quote from him, The great apostle never confines himself to mere positive statements, but often indulges because he feels that he must do in arguments, in polemics. I make this point because I feel there is a great deal of very loose and very false and flabby thinking on the whole question of polemics and argumentation at the present time. The attitude of man seems to be we do not want these arguments. Give us the simple message, the simple gospel. Give it to us positively. If we speak like that, we are denying the scriptures. The scriptures are full of arguments, full of polemics. End quotation by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. We are reminded of Paul at Athens when he disputed in the synagogue with Jews and in the marketplace daily with them that met with him, Acts 17, 17. And at Ephesus, Acts 19, 8 and 9, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Another quote of quotation Dr. Lloyd-Jones. He says, Disapproval of polemics in a Christian church is a very serious matter. But that is the attitude of the age in which we are now living. The prevailing idea today in many circles in the church is not to bother about these things. As long as we are Christians, all is well. Do not let us argue about the doctrine. Let us all be Christians together and talk about the love of God. Unfortunately, the same attitude is creeping into evangelical circles also. End of my 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' second quotation. A word of clarification may be briefly needed here. We anticipate a measure of uneasiness in the minds of some readers, since the quotations above are the strongest affirmation of this chapter, we will let the author himself deal with the emotions he has aroused. In very clear language and with sympathetic mind, he offers the following clarification. Quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Let us be clear about what we mean. This is not argument for the sake of argument. This is not a manifestation of an argumentative spirit. This is not indulging one's own prejudices. The scriptures do not approve of that. And furthermore, the scriptures are very concerned about the spirit in which one engages in discussion. No man should like arguments for the sake of argument. We should always regret the necessity, but though we regret it and bemoan it, when we feel that a vital matter is at stake, we must engage in argument. We must earnestly contend for the truth. End that quotation from Martin Lowe-Jones. A positive response. Your receiving of this thesis is due to a commission similar to that one given to John on Patmos, Revelation 1.11. What thou seest, write in the book and send it unto the seven churches. See, write, send. It may also resemble the earlier commission of Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2, verse 2. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. The seven churches to which John wrote were representative of the Church of Jesus Christ of all ages. The herald of Habakkuk's message could be the mailman or any bearer of the truth by hand. We who have read both Habakkuk's and John's message seek to send it with urgency to others and we trust that readers of this message will also relay it with expediency to others while the writing may not be the commission of all there can be many heralds that bear the message consider the word sow in Christ's parable of the sower in Matthew 13 3-8 19-23 we see that there are several categories of recipients of the seed, several kinds of ground where the seed may fall, several possible conditions of mind and heart. The wayside represents hearts and minds from which Satan has snatched away the seed without it germinating at all due to lack of understanding, total misunderstanding or immediate rejection. The stony places represent superficial reception which could not withstand opposition due to lack of spiritual nourishment for the tender sprout of truth. Among thorns signifies a variety of truth-choking influences, erroneous doctrines, false tradition, excessive denominational attachment, or maybe simply pride or prejudice. The first few verses of Ecclesiastes 11, however, give valuable directives and encouragements to the sower. We have a command and promise in verse 1, Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. 
We are told not to wait for a favorable wind in verse 4. He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and to be ready to sow at all times in verse 6. In the morning sow thy seed, and the evening withhold not thine hand, for the knowest not whether shall prosper, either this or that, or whether they shall be alike good, or both be equally well. Psalm 126.6 has a very encouraging promise also for the soul of truth. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Another aspect of our positive response is to shine. Under the title, The Challenge of Light, we urge not only the receiving of light, but also the radiating of light. It will therefore suffice now under this heading, quote the outstanding recommendation and command of Jesus that we do not, quote, hide our lamp under a bowl, but put it on a stand, so that it gives light to everyone in the house, Matthew 5.15. Then there is the commission to instruct. It was, of course, to a young pastor that Paul wrote the words, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, and stated all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's from 2 Timothy 4.2 and 3.16. But he nevertheless encouraged all to be, quote, instruments for noble purpose, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. 2 Timothy 2.21 And he continues with the words, And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, in some measure at least, not resentful. Those who oppose him he must gently instruct, in hope that God will grant them repentance, that is, a change of mind and thought, as we saw earlier, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil, that is, the trap of Greek philosophy, Colossians 2.8, who has taken them captive to do his will. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. Then there's the word restore. In further words of Paul to the Galatians, Galatians 6, 1, he outlines the duty of a truth-bearer who encounters a brother who has strayed from the truth. He says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. The NIV changes fault to the word sin, but the Greek word paraptoma is given a basic meaning of an unintentional side slip, a lapse or deviation, and is more applicable, we feel, to unintentional errors as those of Platonic Christianity against which Paul was continuously speaking. The restoration enjoined is therefore in line with our listing of the positive responses to the challenges of Platonic Christianity. It seems a restoration to the word of God and those who have followed 
of those who have followed the traditions of men, particularly philosophers. In conclusion, to whichever area or areas of positive response we as individuals are called, we can be assured that we will, as Paul was, we will be told what we must do, as Paul in Acts 9.6. And we can take encouragement from such a verse as Ephesians 3.20, that God is able to do, even through our consecrated instrumentality, immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. May God grant this, and may this study, this treatise, be a help and blessing to many. Amen.